Go ahead and have a seat. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 3. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at the first 20 verses of that this morning. Last week, if you were here or if you watched online, caught it on the podcast, whatever, um, Adam, our student pastor, uh, he did a fantastic job with the last part of Luke chapter 2. And in that, he started by giving this illustration about a young Tim and a young Adam who didn't know each other at the time going to see the president at the downtown airport. And somehow Adam Koontz ended up on my shoulders so that he could see. Um, and I, I, it's not very often that I get to like sit and just listen to someone preach to me. And so uh, I typically love the opportunities to do that. And so I was sitting against the back wall back there during first service and um, I told Adam this, but I felt like last week in the middle of just some of my own kind of struggles and, and uh, my own heart, it felt like Adam put me on his shoulders last week so I could see Jesus and uh, what a gift that was to me. And that is the point. That, that's, the, that's what we're doing when we do a sermon is sometimes you come in on a Sunday morning and, you know, the the band is singing, I got joy, joy, joy deep in my soul, and you're standing there, and you feel entirely different. And the point of the church and the point of opening the word together and gathering together is that sometimes you need someone to get you up on their shoulders so that you can see Jesus. And uh, my prayer is that every Sunday that is what happens here. Um, So I was grateful for Adam in that last week, I pray that as we look at Luke, the beginning of Luke chapter 3, that happens for us this week, and I want to pray toward that end. So if you would join me. God, thank you for the chance to come and, uh, Lord, to sing. Um, you alone are strong enough to save. And the work of Jesus is the only thing that can take broken people and make them whole, take sinful people, make them holy. And God, I pray that the reminders of that reality when we gather together on a Sunday morning, that that would be the thing that gives us joy deep down in our souls and that that joy would be ever present for us. God, our, our happiness or our emotional levels will rise and fall naturally with the seasons of our life. But I pray that there would be this joy that sits just deep inside of us because of what you've done for us in Jesus and that that joy would be a constant. I pray that no matter what happens in society around us, that that joy would be a constant. And when we're struggling to remember that we could come together as a church and someone would put us up on their shoulders so that we can look at Jesus again. God, I pray that we would see him this morning. I pray that in seeing him, we would be reminded that our eyes are always to be fixed on him. God, would you display that to us in your word, through song, in our conversations, in our prayers. God, would would we all see Jesus clearly this morning, I pray in his name. Amen. Before we read our, our passage for today, uh, I just want to do like some, some context catch up. Um, Luke is a long book. It's going to be a long series. People come, whether in and out because of your own traveling or, or whatever, or people, you know, join with us kind of midstream here. And so it's important for us to just keep in mind where we are. So Luke, we said you can divide kind of into four parts, the, the kind of overarching 
picture of Luke splits into four pieces. We're in the first one still. It goes until the middle of chapter four. And what happens in that first section is that we are, we're getting like a presentation of who Jesus is. Luke is saying, here is the Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, Messiah. And you get it kind of over the course of three different panels. And all of them bounce back and forth between Jesus and John the Baptist. So you get birth announcements for John the Baptist and Jesus. You get birth in sort of like young um, life of John and Jesus. And then now we're starting into the third panel of that, which is you see John and Jesus both out in the wilderness. John preaching, Jesus being tempted. And so this morning, the beginning of Luke chapter 3 is John out in the wilderness doing his ministry of preaching and baptizing. But remember, anything we see about John in this opening section is telling us something about Jesus. Because what Luke wants to do is to say, here's John the Baptist, look at him, but here's Jesus. See him. He is greater John is wonderful. He's the forerunner to the Messiah, but this is the Messiah, and John wants to make sure that you don't miss it, and Luke wants to make sure that his readers don't miss it. And so we're being presented with who Jesus is, and Luke is painting this picture of the Savior that's fascinating. He's like rooted in history. He keeps telling us, you know, who was ruling and where something happened. And so Jesus, the Savior, is rooted in actual history and he's presented as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and he's presented in the humility of human flesh. He's permitted, presented in the humility of poverty. He's presented in the humility of human flesh as a baby of all things. And yet he's also presented in the glory of like heaven would rejoice over the birth of this child. That at Jesus' birth, the angels would sing, that at his baptism, the heavens would open and God's voice would boom from heaven that this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And he's also presented in the power of these names of Lord and Savior and Messiah. And yet he's presented on the outskirts of power. Here are the rulers. Jesus is out here. John the Baptist is out here talking about Jesus. And all throughout, he's presented as the Holy One, the one who has come to save. This morning, We're going to see John the Baptist out in the wilderness doing his ministry, but his ministry is all about making sure people see Jesus. His ministry is all about pointing people to the one that's coming that's greater than he is. And so when I say that anything you get about John the Baptist is actually about Jesus, this morning you're going to hear that from John's own mouth, and we'll see that as we go through this. Just a quick note before we read this, Um, we're going to work this week in big picture rather than small picture generals rather than specifics. And then next week, we're going to overlap the passage a little bit and talk about the specifics of like John's baptism versus what it is when we get baptized today, because there's a little bit of something different going on. So I'm not ignoring that conversation. It's just, I want us to see forest uh, for the trees here this morning. And then next week, we'll zoom in a little bit. This morning is maybe the clearest chance to see something that Luke has been doing in a regular rhythm all throughout the beginning of his gospel. But it requires that we see kind of the specifics of this passage, but zoom out and catch the big picture. So big picture is the goal today. Let's read Luke 3, 1 to 20. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Then he said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. and The one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, What should we do? He said to them, Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with a fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked John up in prison. One big point this morning and it's less of like a main point and more of like a mantra and it's the mantra that Luke has been using throughout the opening of his gospel and it is the mantra of John the Baptist's life and that mantra ought to be the mantra of the church and it is this eyes on Jesus that's it eyes on Jesus This is going to take us a little bit of time today. Adam was short last week. I like to think that he banked some minutes and he's crediting them to me this week. We need to work with the passage, make sure that we see it and understand it. And then I want to draw out two applications. One um, that is important because of the particular Sunday that it is. I'll get there in a, in a bit, and then one that is more relevant, I think, to our current cultural circumstances and cultural climate. And so, if we can understand big picture what it is that Luke is doing, I think both of those will make sense, but we need to do a little bit of work to get there. So let's start with John. Luke is positioning this prophet and forerunner to the Messiah, and he gives you the historical context for when that's happening in verses 1 and 2. But it's interesting because as he positions the historical context for John, he's also giving you the historical context for Jesus's ministry. Often what happens is we read a section of scripture, and then our Bibles break out a new section, and we lose memory of what came previously. The historical context that John, are that Luke gives you for John the Baptist's ministry is the exact same historical context in which Jesus's ministry is going to take place. And so Luke wants to make sure that we understand that John the Baptist is a prophet. We get that in verse two. 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. That verbal construction, God's word came to fill in the blank, is the common way that a prophet is introduced all throughout the Old Testament. It's how Shemaiah is introduced in 1 Kings chapter 12. Elijah is introduced in 1 Kings 17. It's how Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Joel, Jonah, Haggai, and Zechariah are introduced at the start of their books in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord or the word of God came to fill in the blank individual's name, typically then son of fill in the blank. What authenticated their prophetic ministry is the word of God. And similarly, that's what authenticates the gift of prophecy today, God's word. We kind of think that the gift of prophecy or that a prophet or a prophetic word or something is like looking into a crystal ball and telling the future. That's not what it is. Prophecy isn't gazing into a crystal ball and taking a guess at what's to come in the future. Prophecy is standing on the word of God, gazing into the word of God and speaking the truth based on the word of God. That's what John the Baptist is is doing in his ministry and that's what the gift of prophecy is in the church. So we've got John, the word of God comes to him and it comes to him in the wilderness. That's another important phrase there. The wilderness in the Old Testament was typically, that idea was tied to a time of difficulty or trial or a time of preparation and preparing, waiting expectantly for the work of God. Moses has a time out in the wilderness before his ministry. Israel spends their time out in the wilderness after the Exodus. Elijah spends time out in the wilderness during his ministry. Now we've got John the Baptist. The word of God comes to him and he's out in the wilderness preparing people for the coming activity of God. And that activity is that the Savior has arrived. The Messiah is here. And he wants people to be ready for it. He's the forerunner. That's his job. He's not just a prophet. He's a forerunner to the Messiah. And Luke takes a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, and he drops it in the middle to underscore that this is who John the Baptist is. He is the answer to Old Testament prophecy of a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. And then there's this chunk about every valley will be filled and mountain and hill will be made low, crooked paths become straight, rough ways smooth so that everyone will see the salvation of God. In ancient times, when the king would come and visit your city, typically there was some sort of public works project that took place in order to make a very nice, straight, smooth road so that the king could come into your city and be surrounded by all the pomp and circumstance that ought to surround the arrival of the king. What Isaiah is saying, and now Luke is drawing in about John the Baptist, is that John is smoothing the road for the Messiah. He's bringing the mountains down and the valleys up so that the work of God can be ushered into the world in the person of the Messiah on this nice, flat, kind of savior superhighway so that everyone would see. That doesn't mean everybody's gonna accept it. That doesn't mean everybody's gonna like it. It doesn't mean everybody is going to receive him. But everybody's going to see that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's John the Baptist, prophet and forerunner. Luke wants us to be clear. He has arrived, here he is. But if we zoom out, there's a little bit more happening. Look at verses one and two. You get this list of who is in power at the time. 
Tiberius Caesar is the emperor. Pontius Pilate is the governor of Judea. Herod was tetrarch of an area of called Galilee. His brother Philip is tetrarch of two regions nearby. And this guy named Lysanias is tetrarch of another one. And then ruling in the temple are Annas and uh, Caiaphas, who are the priests. This is the third time that Luke has basically said, here's the setting. Here's who's in power. Now look over here. If you want to, or you can just jot it down. If you were to flip back to Luke chapter one, verse five, at the prediction or the announcement of John the Baptist's birth, we're told in the days of King Herod of Judea. So there's who's in power. Now look at this barren woman who's about to give birth. In Luke two, verses like one and two, really one through three, we're about to be told about the birth of Jesus. And Luke says, Caesar was in power. And don't you remember there was a registration that took place while Quirinius was governing Syria and everyone had to go to be registered? Yeah, that's the setting. Now look over here at this teenage girl who's about to give birth because she conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. And then you arrive in chapter three. And he says, here's everybody who's in power. Here's the emperor, here's the governor, here's kind of the ruler of the area, here's who's leading in the temple. Now look out into the wilderness. Here's the forerunner. That rhythm just repeats itself in the early part of Luke. Here's who's in the halls of power, in the seats of power, but it's not about them. Look over here instead. Look at this barren elderly woman. Look at this teenager who conceived miraculously and is giving birth to a savior. Look at this prophet out in the wilderness, eating weird food, dressed in crazy clothing, calling people to repentance. That's where the action is. David Garland says it this way. Those wearing the crowns and holding the reins of power fool themselves into believing that they determine the course of history. But the narrative, Luke, makes clear that God's plan is not controlled by the laws of kings, the machinations of politicians, or the solemn rituals of priests. History is directed by a transcendent power leading to an appointed time that is not in the appointment books of any of these rulers. The word of God bypasses the halls of power with their royal trappings and comes to a lone prophet in the wilderness. Luke is saying, see the setting, put your eyes on Jesus. Understand where you are in history, look at Jesus. Your setting matters, but what matters is seeing Jesus in your setting. History matters, what's happening in the world around you matters, but then you need to locate Jesus in the middle of it. Most often, that's going to require looking in a different direction than where most of the world looks. Eyes on Jesus. Hold that in your mind as we continue forward. Starting in verse seven, we see like what the ministry of John the Baptist actually looked like. And from seven to 17, you get John doing his thing out in the wilderness. He's got a message and he's commanding a baptism. That message is repent. Unapologetically, whether you read it here in Luke or you read it in another gospel, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he is telling people to repent. Flee from the coming wrath. 
produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't think to yourselves that because we're the children of Abraham, that is somehow going to save us. If God wanted to raise up children for himself, he could do it out of those rocks over there. The ax is at the tree and it is going to cut down every tree that does not bear good fruit. You need to repent. Your heritage won't save you. Your adherence to the law is imperfect. Just because you're a child of Abraham, you're an Israelite, don't think that everything is going to be fine. You must repent. That's John the Baptist's message. And that message is tied to the coming of Jesus. Look at verses 15 through 17. They're hearing John proclaim this. They're seeing him baptize people. We'll get to some of the questions they ask here in just a moment. And it says, now people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. John is saying, repent. Your lineage won't save you. Your goodness according to the law won't save you. I can't save you, but there's one who's coming who is greater than me, and you need to put your gaze on him. Look at Jesus. Here comes the Messiah. The whole world is going to see, and you need to repent and prepare yourself for his kingdom, and you need to be baptized. And that baptism is one of commitment. You need to repent and commit to that lifestyle of repentance. Again, we'll talk baptism specifically next week and what John's baptism meant and why Jesus comes and gets baptized. For today, all that really matters when we talk big picture here is that in John's day and in the Old Testament for Jewish people, baptism was the means by which a non-Jewish person got cleansed in order to become, like to convert to Judaism, for lack of a better phrase. So think about how offensive what John the Baptist is saying is. You're an Israelite and it won't save you. You've tried to live according to the law and it won't save you. You need to be baptized. Like, hold on, I need to be cleaned? I'm one of God's chosen people. Not gonna matter, John says. You must repent and you must be baptized. Wildly offensive to a Jewish individual and yet explosively good to a Gentile. Why? Because everything's on level footing now. I can repent and I can be baptized and I can be part of this coming kingdom. And it all hinges on humility. John is asking Jewish people to acknowledge that they would need to be saved. He's asking them to acknowledge that their pedigree won't do it. He's asking them to acknowledge that they have not upheld the law and thus they need to repent. They're bad trees that deserve to be cut down. The amount of humility required of a Jewish individual in that is wild. And it's the same for the Gentiles. He's asking Gentiles to see that God is God, that there's only one, that he will judge, and thus they would need to be saved. Everyone has access. It requires repentance and humility, and it requires eyes on Jesus because John the Baptist won't save you. But there's one coming coming who will. And that raises questions, as it should for a Jewish person at the time. And so they start to say, well, then what do we need to do? Verse 10. And John shares with them 
what repentance would look like. And so to the crowd, he says, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. The one who has food should do the same. To a group of tax collectors specifically, he says in verse 13, don't collect more than what you have been authorized. And to a group of soldiers in verse 14, he says, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. Be content. Don't extort people. If you're rich, make sure to take care of those who are poor. You've got a job, do it justly and fairly. You're a soldier who's being paid. Don't extort people, be content with what you have. There's what repentance looks like, says John the Baptist. Piece of cake. And all of that is forward-looking to Jesus. I want to make three observations here really quickly about repentance. Repentance is something that is all throughout the Bible. It's a consistent theme in the Gospels, a consistent theme in the New Testament. So what I share out of this, these observations come out of this text, but they're biblical. They're they're consistent all throughout the Bible. And the first is that repentance has an internal component, and that component is humility. No one repents without being humbled. And where there's no humility, there will be no repentance. That was step one for the people listening to John the Baptist. You're going to have to humble yourself and admit that you need a savior. You're going to have to admit that you can't save yourself, that that savior is Jesus, and that requires humility. It's step one for people looking for Jesus today, and it is also a consistent rhythm within the life of those who are Christian. In fact, Christian people ought to be the most repentant people on the planet. Why? We've already admitted that we're broken. We've already admitted that we need a Savior. We've already admitted that there is a Savior and that there is a God who would know everything about me. So anything that I could possibly confess to him, he's already aware of. I've already said that I'm not perfect. Repentance requires humility. And the places where we don't want to repent are often the places where we have not yet been humbled. And so we cling on to our sin or walking in a way that is opposed to God and his commands or opposed to the life of Jesus. And we hold on to it until the humbling experience either becomes so difficult or possibly so embarrassing or the consequences are so grave that all of a sudden we hit what we would typically call rock bottom and now there's a humility there that allows us to repent. Repentance, that's the internal component. But as you see here from John the Baptist, there's an external component. That our repentance has tangible, practical, relational, outward implications. Repentance isn't something that is strictly internal. It's an internal act that has immediate and clear and particular implications for the way that it is that we live. The Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1646 says it this way, men, and by men it means humanity, ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins particularly. And so John gives three examples. If you've got a lot and someone doesn't have enough, give. If you've got a job, repentance looks like changing so that you would do your job fairly. If you're a soldier with power, you've got power Repentance would look like not using your power to extort others. If repentance hasn't changed your behavior, then you haven't repented. It's not the change in behavior that's ultimately going to save you, 
but the change in behavior is absolutely a sign that repentance has actually taken place. Repentance has this outward component. Let me give you the the first of the two applications I want to make this morning. The first is this. On this particular Sunday, uh, churches across the nation pause in order to recognize, celebrate, and uphold the sanctity of human life. We associate that with abortion, rightfully so. When we align ourselves with the moral ethic of Jesus, and when we align ourselves with the Bible, we put our eyes on Jesus, it forces us to realize that both the philosophical and the practical reality of the sanctity of human life are hard because of sin. You come to Jesus, you realize that your life has immeasurable intrinsic worth, that God created you intentionally and wonderfully, and that Jesus died to save you. You also realize that not just like somebody else's life in a general sense, but everyone else's life has the same immeasurable intrinsic value, that God created them intentionally and wonderfully, and that Jesus died that they might have the opportunity to be saved. And as we see Jesus in the life that he calls us to live, we're confronted with all of the ways in which our sin makes it that we would want to put our life ahead of somebody else's life. That the selfishness and the pride that lives within us would make us want to elevate our own life above that of somebody else's. And we're forced to reckon with the reality that if all of life, in all of its forms, in all of its stages, is valuable, there are times where my behavior and my actions my sin pressed down on somebody else's life. Our flesh wants to put ourselves first. Repentance forces us to reckon with the brokenness of that, to humble ourselves, to turn, to lock our eyes on Jesus, and then to allow the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the others before ourselves life that Jesus lived. See that in the examples that John the Baptist gives. You uphold the sanctity of another person's life when when you've got a lot of excess, you share with someone who doesn't have enough. You uphold the sanctity of another person's life when you do your job justly and fairly. You uphold the sanctity of another person's life when you don't use your power to extort from them. You can see it in the way that Jesus treats people and the way that he teaches. And we can see it in a myriad of ways that it applies today. Upholding the sanctity of human life absolutely includes the fight against abortion. Recognizes that life begins in the womb and then extends through all phases, stages, and seasons of life after that. But a conversation about the sanctity of human life that only includes abortion is a conversation that we're not handling in a holistically biblical way. Because to talk about the sanctity of human life would force us to reckon with how it is that we handle those who live in poverty, how it is that we treat the elderly, how it is that we care for the sick and the needy and the marginalized and the powerless, how it is that we seek justice for victims and how it is that we treat prisoners in jail, how it is that we treat immigrants and foreigners and strangers, how it is that we treat the disabled, how it is that women, our men treat women, how it is that young people treat old people, how it is that older people treat younger people. And what we're forced to reckon with is the reality that our own flesh and our own sin causes us to step on the sanctity of human life in a myriad of different ways. And when we start to repent with our eyes on Jesus, 
We start to live in a way that says, I would be willing to bring the importance of my life down in order to bring the importance of everybody's life up. And there's a tangible, practical outworking of repentance that would uphold the sanctity of human life in all of its forms, beginning in the womb and ending with someone's very last breath. Upholding the sanctity of human life must include the fight to protect the unborn, but it cannot only include the fight for the unborn. At LCF, we're committed to all aspects of that fight because the ethic of the Bible demands it. The life of Jesus demands it. Locking our eyes on Jesus demands it. Third observation about repentance. Repentance requires putting your eyes on Jesus. We need to know what it is that we need to repent from, and that means we need to look at Jesus. We need to know what it is that we're repenting toward, and that means we need to look at Jesus. We have to know who empowers our repentance. That means we have to look at Jesus. We need to know who gets the glory for our repentance, and that requires looking at Jesus. We have to know what it is that ultimately saves, and that means looking at Jesus. The crux of John the Baptist's life and message is one thing, eyes on Jesus. From when the moment he leaps in his mother's womb, when Mary comes into the room, to the moment that he dies as a martyr, his life is about one thing, and it's helping people look at Jesus. All of the gospel of Luke, from the first page to the very last page, is about one thing. Luke is screaming, everybody look at Jesus. You might be tempted to look somewhere else, but look at Jesus. See where we are in history. Look at Jesus. See who's in power. Now look at Jesus. See who runs things in the world's eyes. Now look at Jesus. See your need for a savior and look at Jesus. See the reality of coming judgment and look at Jesus. See that you need to repent and look at Jesus. Put your eyes on the Holy One. Luke is presenting the Savior to us. And in presenting that Savior, he's saying, look at him. Don't look at anything else. Look at Jesus. That's the message of John the Baptist. That's the message of Luke's gospel. And it ought to be the message of the church. The church is to be tethered to one thing and one thing only. And that one thing is Jesus. It's the church's role to point the rest of the world toward that one thing. Like Luke like John the Baptist. It's the church's obligation then to repent when we would drift toward another place. That includes both the entire entity of the church, but also the individuals inside it. So when I, in my own life, am tempted to look to something else and you know, tether myself to something else, and then I come to realize that that's the reality, humility demands that I repent that I see what I have done, the consequences that it's had, and I turn and I look back at Jesus. We as a church, a local church, but also a church in America, need not tie ourselves to anything else. Not to bank accounts, careers, lifestyles, habits, relationships. When we start to look to one of those things, or when we get ourselves entangled with something that conflicts with the message of the gospel, the commands of scripture, or the life of Jesus, we've got to go back to the mantra. We need to hear John the Baptist out in the wilderness yelling for people to put their eyes on Jesus.
I don't like having to talk about politics. I stand up here in front of our congregation on a week in and a week out basis and I want to talk about Jesus. That's it. I want to stand up here and I want to talk about the beauty and the glory of the gospel and I want to point people to Jesus and I want us to sing and make a whole lot out of Jesus and then I want us to go and make a bunch out of Jesus outside of this place. Like that's all I want to do. But sometimes my job demands that because the place where either the church is or the place where we are in society, we're looking to the wrong place, that I talk about the wrong place in order to direct our eyes back onto Jesus. And in our current social setting, it is incumbent upon me to talk about some political things, not because I've got political answers, but because I need us, we need to put our eyes back on Jesus. And so I come into this like trembling. I know what my email inbox is going to look like tomorrow. I know what the phone calls are going to sound like. I know what the conversations are going to sound like. And yet I would be unfaithful to this congregation and to my call as a pastor to not say, church, look at Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. Something has happened along the way. I'm not old enough to say how many years it's taken, exactly when it started, what all the turns and twists are in the story that got us here. But in some way, we have ended up as a church in America locking our eyes on the White House as if that is the place where the commands of the church and the ethic of the Bible are going to win the day. Wrong. Look at Luke. Here's who's in power. Look at Jesus. Here's who's ruling. Look at Jesus. And when we are guilty of looking in the wrong place like that, the consequences are that the world gets confused about what the gospel is actually about. Is it about the White House or is it about that cross over there? Which is it? We've made politics into an attachment that we've got to separate ourselves from. We've made it an idol that we need to repent of, to turn from, to walk away from. I know I'm speaking in generalities here, and I'm going to have to speak in generalities over the next few minutes. And so you might sit here this morning and think to yourself, this isn't me at all. Praise the Lord. But as a general movement, evangelical Christianity has fallen into a spot where we've so entangled ourselves with politics here in America that the world is confused about what the gospel is. The world's confused about what it means to follow Jesus. And we need to separate from that. And that doesn't mean we disengage. It doesn't mean that we don't care about America. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. It doesn't mean that we can't value and appreciate and love the blessings and the freedoms that we have here. But it does mean that as followers of Jesus, we understand that we're all of those things to disappear tomorrow, just to evaporate up into the smoke and the vapor that they are in the light of eternity. Nothing would ultimately change for us. Not one thing. 
the deepest and truest realities that exist for us as followers of Jesus would be the exact same. Nothing of ultimate value would be lost. God would still be good. He would still be working. He would still be building his church. The glory would ultimately be his to shine despite the light of America having been snuffed out. And that doesn't mean, don't hear this wrong, that Tim stood up on Sunday morning and said the best thing that could happen would be for America to disappear. I didn't say that. But what I did say is that if God in his sovereign wisdom decided that the best thing for his glory and the expanse of the gospel among the nations were to just dissolve America tomorrow, as a follower of Jesus, I would say, to you be the glory. Could cost me my job. Whatever the changes are could cost me my life because I'm a pastor. And I would say, to God be the glory. To think or to fear otherwise. To have our life dictated by something other than that is to distort the gospel and put our eyes in a place they were never intended to be. Over the last couple of weeks, maybe you've heard people within, you know, evangelical Christianity use a phrase, Christian nationalism. I want to define that this morning and I want to talk about why it's unbiblical and I want to talk about why it is that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we won't fall into that. Christian nationalism is the merging of the Christian identity and the American identity into one thing so that if you tried to separate them, it seems like both would fall apart. That's unbiblical. In America, we kind of live, we like breathe that oxygen that's why Barack Obama would, could put out a book and entitle it A Promised Land. And what are all the associations we would make with that? Yeah, mostly Christian. That's why Donald Trump would stand up at the 2019 State of the Union address and say, we must keep America first in our hearts. We must keep freedom alive in our souls and we must always keep faith in America's destiny that one nation under God must be the hope and the promise and the light and the glory among all the nations of the world. You tell me what the hope and the light and the glory of all the nations among the world is. America or the gospel? It's Jesus. And it's the church. We should have no confusion about that. None whatsoever. Christian nationalism falsely sees the promises of God through the lens of America. It says us first because God chose us. And by us, it means America. The sort of like pervasive intertwining of these things is why it's so common for us to read the Old Testament and see all the promises that God makes to Israel and to just immediately assume that they obviously apply to America. Christian nationalism roots one's identity to their earthly citizenship either above or on par with their citizenship in God's kingdom. Christian nationalism sees the American political system as the means by which the gospel will spread. Christian nationalism sees might and power and greatness as tied primarily to a place in its political ideology and its leaders instead of tied to a person, Jesus Christ, and his power. Christian nationalism sees the Constitution as a divinely inspired document on par with the very words of God himself, meaning that we would fight to protect the amendments over and above humble obedience to God's commandments. Christian nationalism sees our nation as the divinely chosen people of God. 
sees the temporal reality of this place as some sort of hinge point for the eternal work that God is doing around the world. Christian nationalism says, eyes on my nation, eyes on my leader, eyes on my political platform, rather than eyes on Jesus. Christian nationalism confuses the role of a nation and the means by which God works in his world. Christian nationalism would say, really study the first two verses of Luke chapter three because that's where the power is. Whereas John the Baptist is out in the wilderness saying, put your eyes on Jesus. That's where the power is. To revisit David Garland, he says this, as the state should not be allowed to commandeer the church for its political ends, so the church should not seek to achieve its spiritual goals through political power or violence. That strategy is destined to fail. Only the plain spoken proclamation of the word of God to the powerful and the powerless, even when it's just a lonely voice in the wilderness, will win the day. Hear me clearly and correctly when I say that Christian nationalism is unbiblical. It's evidence that our eyes are on the wrong thing. The kingdom of God rests not with a nation or a political party. The promises of God flow not through America, but through God's faithfulness and his work and his spirit through his people throughout his world. The identity of a follower of Jesus is tied not to their, national or their nation of origin, but to Christ and their new life in him. Followers of Jesus are to follow a path of humility and love, oftentimes encompassing or including disgrace and ridicule. We're not to chase after the way of power and might. Followers of Jesus see the blessings of the place where they live. They work for the good of the people who live where they live, according to the realities of the kingdom, not according to the promises of a political ideology or a founding document. Followers of Jesus understand that the eternal realities of God are what give meaning to the temporary matters of everyday life. Followers of Jesus see the people of God, regardless of where they live, as God's chosen people, not the people of a particular nation. Followers of Jesus are like voices in the wilderness, crying out, eyes on Jesus, above everything else. And when we lock our eyes on Jesus, it helps us to untether ourselves from anything else and to tie ourselves only to him. It helps us to follow Jesus and no other leader. It allows us to stand outside of the halls of power and to look over at the left and say, that's evil, that's evil, that's evil, that's evil. And then to turn our eyes over to the right and say, that's evil, that's evil, that's evil, and that's evil. And then to look at Jesus and say, you want the better answer? There it is. When we get all wrapped up in politics, we think that the war is really about which side of the political spectrum happens to hold power in the White House rather than which power in all of the universe is ultimately the one who has the answer for all of the evil, who has the answer for all of the brokenness, who holds redemption for everything that is broken, who will one day come and squash all of this brokenness and bring about something that's free from sin. We tempt ourselves into thinking that what ultimately matters is the person who's in the White House. It must mean that we don't realize what ultimately matters is Jesus Christ on the throne. And it means that we tell the rest of the world that what ultimately matters to the church is who's in the White House, not Jesus. The message of the church at all times, in all places, is eyes on Jesus. That's it. Luke is saying it. John the Baptist is saying it. 
the whole of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation's final word says it. And when we as Christians stray from that, whether as individuals or as a church collectively, we are to repent. That requires humility. And it may mean that we need to be humbled. And if what God is doing in America at this time in our social setting is all about his people taking a hard look into his word and into the mirror and humbling themselves to repent so that the nations get a clear view of the gospel, then have your way, Jesus. Do what you will. If what results from this season in American history is that the gospel is presented in its purity to lost people, then praise God for what he's done in this period of history. That kind of repentance within the life of the church that separates itself from the halls of power and locks its eyes on Jesus will have practical implications in our own personal lives. It will have practical implications within the life of our churches, within the life of our society. It requires that we put our eyes on Jesus Christ. It starts with our eyes on Jesus. It's maintained by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And the ending place is all of us surrounding the throne looking at the glory of Jesus. And I pray that the results of whatever it is that God is doing in America right now would be the loudest voices, the best arguments are not coming from the Senate floor, the House floor, and our nation's Capitol building, but are tumbling out of the lips of people who look at Jesus and see him. I pray that what happens in America as a result of this particular season is not that the right or the wrong party ends up in power in the White House, but that the right message stems forth from the church, that Jesus is what is ultimately important, that the gospel is what is ultimately true, and that anyone can look to him and be saved. I pray that what happens in this nation during this time is that the church separates itself from its you know, decades-long thrust to getting the right thing in power so that the government would do the church's work and instead we would repent and say we will do the church's work because we are the church. We're not going to leave it to the left. We're not going to leave it to the right. We're going to take it upon ourselves and we'll vote and we'll take part in our society and we'll love this place, but we'll love the gospel even more. And if this place disappears, we'll love the gospel even still. And if the party that we don't want ends up in power in the White House, we'll love the gospel. And if the party that we really like ends up in power in the White House, we'll love the gospel. And we'll be humble enough to stand out in the wilderness, even if we're there all alone, and say, eyes on Jesus. Put your eyes on Jesus. All week long as I thought about this, the words of Just that real simple song ran through my head over and over and over again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. Oh, would they grow dim? 
would they grow dim in the light of his glory and grace as we look only and ever to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together.